0: blood talk radio
1: Welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon, the podcast with more celebrities in the inauguration and the podcast that loves you. I am your hostess, your spiritual advisor, your groove mistress, Madam Perry, and um, as you see, we're having trouble with the transporter. For regular listeners, your use of the transporter coming on, and then Mr. Sulu, my doorman, but um, I think he's taking a vacation right now, probably because of pride. That's cool. Uh, but anyway, first of all, I want to say thank you to everyone who has been uh, listening, sharing, subscribing. You know, people subscribe on all manner of platforms, which is a cool thing about podcasts. Uh, you don't have to have a certain uh, channel or station or network. And people subscribe here on Blog Talk Radio, on uh, uh, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, I think it's one, Last FM, and there are probably several more, and probably some that are making money off me that I don't know about, but um, yeah, even my doctor, when I came out, he says, oh, Madam Perry, what's on the show next? So um, thanks to you guys, I'm able to continue bringing you guests that you really like, some of it's people you already know and love, some of the people new to you that you like, and you let me know, and that's why I keep bringing cool people to you, like we've been having like coming up soon and tonight by the way uh recently a couple of weeks ago we had um franny goldie on and people have asked me about this a lot and sent me messages franny goldie uh, especially from the 80s on she was songwriter and she's singer too great singer and musician uh she's written some of your favorite songs like uh, or songs that you know, she's written thousands, has several Grammy awards and nominations. Ones I can think of right now are The Commodores' "Night Shift," "On the Night Shift." That one, um, she uh, one of Selena's um, big hits, and uh, "Pussycat Doll." She's written for them and several, you know, rock, country, pop. She's written a lot of big songs, but now she has a fashion line. It's Franny Goldie, and uh, it's even been uh written up in Oprah several times by Adam Glassman and then they've he's taken her clothes onto uh the view and shown them off. And she said, because Adam Glassman call, uh who's Oprah's style guru called Franny's uh women's slacks the magic pants because they're comfortable and sharp looking. And she said, and just if you didn't get this before, if you go to her website Franny Goldie dot com, F-R-A-N-N-E, G O L D E dot com. If you go in there and you order magic pants or probably anything you order on there, put in M P S, it stands for Madame Perry Salon. Put in M P S and Franny will give you a discount. Just just for saying M P S. She sent me my pants yesterday and I love them and you will too. And let's see, what else? Oh, recently we had Robert Trebor on. Um, He's been an actor in film and TV and stage for, gosh, since the 70s. Still working now. Uh, Most people these days know him from the years on Hercules and Xena, Warrior Princess. He was, I think, Salmaneus was his character. And his latest book, The Haircut, Who Would Be King, um, is on Amazon. And he says, please leave him a review. And let's see, what we had Mike Campisi from... uh, uh, from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and he said he had a great time. and will be coming back. And thanks to most of you who have been following a, f- uh, a guest on uh, on Twitter or any other social media or Instagram. They really appreciate that, too. So, oh, and soon we're going to have things. Uh, let's see, I've got Deborah Wallace, who's a writer, and you probably read a lot of her stuff in Parade Magazine. Also got a... Um, a gentleman with a brand-new book on augmented reality and uh, artificial intelligence. I'll be announcing that later. Lots of cool stuff. But tonight, and I have already been getting messages about tonight's guest, is a woman who I find extremely fascinating. Uh, And I'm not the only one. uh, She is an artist, a writer, a poet, and professor living in Los Angeles. And she's also a... What's called a hybrid taxidermist. Now her artwork has appeared in prestigious galleries in L.A. and across the country, Uh, and there was a television show on AMC called Immortalized, and it was one of the competition shows for people who do hybrid taxidermy, and she was a guest on that. It was astounding. If people that have watched it and People that are watching again on YouTube, uh, it's it's just amazing. The hybrid animals are, uh, well, you know what, why, why, why should I go on? Why don't I let Catherine Cohn come in here. Catherine, welcome to Madame Berry's Salon.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Well, I'm delighted to have you here. As you see, um, it's kind of uh, like one of my guests said that it's like the inside of Jeannie's bottle being in here, so I hope you find a nice cushion to sit on and get very comfortable <laughs> Thank and, you. Okay, and let's see, and um, and I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Uh, is it Cohen or Cohen? It's Cohen. It's sort
0: of uh, one and a half syllables. <laughs> okay.
1: Yes, I was listening to someone <laughs> interview. And they were following you around um, one of your installations in a gallery, one of your shows, and when I kept listening to, her, I didn't know if she was saying Cohen or if it was just the, um, you know, the sounds around her. So, but yeah. Uh, welcome. Tell us, uh, if you don't mind, first of all, for people who were uninitiated to it, like me, what are hybrid animals
0: or hybrid I, men? I I'm trained as a sports taxidermist, which means I, do, I was trained to do the kind of taxidermy where you would know, see a deer head over a fireplace. Um, but I do not do sport taxidermy. In fact, I don't use any animals that have been hunted or killed in my work. Um, but I, I call it hybrid because it's, it's sort of fine art and taxidermy, um, together. And what that means is that I take, um, a, an animal and make it strange, for example, give a deer, um, you know, fangs, um, or I take an animal and put it in a situation that it wouldn't uh, normally be in, like, you know, taking a bush pig and putting him on top of a dinner table with china everywhere.
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Um. So when did you begin? Because as I understand, I don't ever see, and and I'm glad, too, you you brought in the point that, you know, you don't work with taxidermy on animals that have been hunted and killed. Uh, But I don't ever hear of a lot of women in taxidermy. So how did you get involved in it? Where were you first introduced to it?
0: Um, You know, I grew up in Montana, and my dad was a fisherman and hunter. Uh, so we had taxidermy all over our house. I'm not opposed to to hunting as long as it meets, you know, basic ethical standards and, of, of course, not trophy hunting. Um, but I, w- I was very drawn to taxidermy from an early age. It has a sort of a narrative quality. Um, you know, it captures the animal in still life. And as a child, I remember storytelling about these animals that were in our, our houses. Um, and as an adult, I um, became – my degree is actually in creative writing. And I became a a poet and storyteller and started teaching writing. Um, And a few years ago, I started having ideas for um, doing these sort of narrative dioramas that involve taxidermy. That was my first series called The Canary Suicides. And I started making them, and they actually started selling. People liked them, and so I decided to learn to do the taxidermy myself. And so I went to taxidermy school and learned all of the animals and started getting interested in doing bigger pieces and then full-room installations.
1: And that um, that's really quite right. Because what you do, yours really are art. They have a story. Uh, I think some of your most some of your most famous series are the Canary Suicides, and mm-hmm. it's not as it might sound to someone at the beginning, like something um, like, "Oh my God, how could she do?" But it had every story. It has a very tender story to it. Yes, uh, my, the way I- my sorry <laughs> no go ahead I'm just saying as i see it that's my interpretation but
0: yes yes my that's and that's that's very close um different people read them differently you know an, an artist can tell you why he or she makes art a certain way and that can change on a given day so everybody's interpretation is valid but for me there's there's some history of sort of I guess what I would call dark personalities in my family. There's some addiction, there's some depression, and there are several suicides going back in the history of my family. So um, I don't, I'm not doing this in a flip way or, or to mock anyone who has, who has uh, mental issues um, who, or who has made, you know, made a successful or unsuccessful suicide attempt. It's more the, the, the sort of obvious metaphor of the animal in the cage, which we all are, and how we deal with that.
1: Hmm. I like that, especially the last part. I kind of I hadn't seen it like that, but I do now. And and yes, I don't think um, many of us (laughs) are animals in cages, but many of us, yeah, do have uh, a friend, a loved one, you know, a family member. That's had some kind of a dark side, addiction, uh, depression, or something, and that's why I say these stories. It's, it's like they're told with heart. Maybe, maybe like it's the person's story, but with the animal. But there seems to be some soul, uh, some heart put into it, into them. Yeah, because I have fun.
0: Yeah, I and I have I have great affection, um, both for the you know the animals that I use in those pieces and in all of my pieces, and for the stories themselves. I um, you know, taxidermy is kind of the shocker as a medium, um, but but really the stories the stories that I tell are stories that all artists tell about you know individuating the self from the whole, or trying the self trying to go back to the whole, um, about love, about hate, about war. So they're you know they're timeless stories. They're just told in a kind of a weird medium
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and of different because it catches you. And I think I don't know about other people and. and- I'm not an artist, but I know that when I first saw them, I was like, what? You know, some of them were like, oh, then what? And then how did, where did this come from? And then sometimes there were some where I kind of looked and looked away at first, but then when I looked back again, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm starting to get it now. I'm starting to really see it a, a story, um, a feeling, your message here. How do you... How do you uh, begin? Where where does your inspiration come from? I know that's a very trite question, but there's got to be something. um, When you create, I think, sort of uh, tableaus or um, stories, I'm just amazed. Where where is your inspiration for the statement you're making or the story you're telling?
0: Um, You know, sometimes the inspiration is visual and sometimes it's verbal. I I find very often that the, the animals or tableau that I create with taxidermy um, or collage end up showing up in my poems and things from my poems end up showing up in my in my artwork. Um, so sometimes it'll be, I, I, if you look at the titles of my work, they're very often um, wordplay. And that's sometimes where, where something starts is that I think about, you know, a compound word that makes up the name of an animal or indicates the kind of movement that the animal makes. And it starts to actually sound kind of funny and revealing. And so that becomes part of how I'm exploring that animal and what it you know um what it might symbolize um and that that works that works also with my poetry that sometimes I will see an image and then that ends you know of an, of an animal, and that will end up becoming you know a stanza in a poem
2: um,
1: How long does it take you to put together some i mean, I'm sure it's different because of the size, but once you get once you know what you're going to do like with the canary suicides, how long does it take you to put together each work?
0: Um,
1: the taxidermy
0: itself is not a lengthy process. You know, it obviously takes a little bit longer if you're working on something small with a lot of detail or something large that's just, you know, a lot of, a lot of stitches and other kinds of labor. Um, but with any kind of taxidermy, you're actually working against time because um, a large part of the process is that you have a hide that's, that's drying onto a form. Um, and so most taxidermy, you know, the, the basics of it only take, um, you know, a max of three or four days unless maybe you're working on an elephant um, because it, you, you're, you're working against time. And sometimes um, with bigger pieces you're, you're working with assistants um, so they can help you work against time. So with the basic taxidermy is usually done in a few days and then there's a longer um, drying and refining and sort of detail process that can go on. Um for a couple of weeks or even a couple of months, if there are items that I need to collect or changes I need to make, you know that kind of thing um but usually i guess I guess the shorter answer is a couple of weeks to a couple of months
1: um, <laughs> i I' tell you what the more the more I talk, the more I have too many questions to say at once um, when will uh, what about your bigger animals like the deer? Mhm. And, and the wild boar. You mean how
0: long do they take? Yes. Um again with the I I think you're talking about the deer the one that's called Father Nature He's standing on a sofa and um the I my friend Eric actually helped me a great deal with that one um Uh, you know, doing some some of the sort of front-end work while I was doing back-end work and then switching. You know, he would say, hey, do you want to work on the face for a minute? And I'll stitch up on the legs, and then, you know, our hands would get tired and we'd switch. And that's very helpful. But, again, that piece, just sort of the, you know, the rough taxidermy, I'm not talking about the sort of sculpting and painting and detail work, but just getting everything on and ready to dry was done in three days. But then that piece, you know, over time there's there's painting that goes on, there you know, there's an epoxy process that I used for the lips, um, that kind of stuff. And that can go that can go as slowly or as quickly as you'd like because you have time. But the, the taxidermy itself just takes a couple of days um up front. Again, unless you're working on something really big, like you know, like an elephant, which I, I mean literally. I've never done one, but I know people who have. And that's a project.
1: <laughs> By the way, this is a good time to say If you're listening live tonight on June 25th and you want to talk to Catherine, you want to ask a question or make a comment or talk about her work, uh, the number here is 646-716-9922. It's a toll-free call in the continental U.S. So it's 646-716-9922. Or for people who have a question but they can't call in, um, you can feel free. You know, Catherine. You know how sometimes we have jobs or, or gigs or, or things that we're doing, and we can't always make a call, so we have to send a little message in, be silent about it. That's the people right. listening on, yeah, <laughs> on their, on their hair fo- headphones at work. Uh, you can go ahead and message me a question at Jennifer Madet Perry on Facebook or Madame Perry Salon on Facebook. Just send me a message. Uh, most of you know what to do, and I'll be happy to pass that along. To Catherine, so uh, our phones are open for any questions. Now, Catherine, before um, I, I go on to other, th- uh, you were also a, a judge on the uh, AMC series Immortalized. How did that come about? Who who came up with the idea for that kind of a competition show, and how did they ask you or approach you? What was that like?
0: I believe it was the president of AMC um, who came up with the concept. It was during a time, um, this was about five years ago, four years ago, um, that um, reality TV was becoming a bigger and bigger deal, and a lot of the networks were having um, nights, you know, sort of blocks of programming that were reality TV. And AMC, um, I think, decided that they wanted to try to get more into that market. um, And taxidermy, um, in in. Uh, fine art was becoming um, kind of a thing around that time um, There, you know, of course there was a movement before that but it was really starting to get more of a media focus um, and AMC had started to have a big hit with Kevin Smith's Comic Book Men so they developed a couple of other shows to be um, around his time slot on Thursdays on AMC and obviously his show was the only one that survived um, maybe some of our listeners tonight were some of the you know 37 people who watched the show but it was it was a very smart show in a lot of ways and was, um, I've never, I never expected or, or, um, sort of pursued doing anything like that before. It was a great time.
1: Yeah. It seemed like it. And the shows that, that I watched or watched the ends of recently, you know, you're talking, and, um, it was probably done about the same time as there's a show called, um, uh, another kind of show in that vein called steampunked. Um, and one of the judges was, or the judge was my friend, uh, Thomas Dean Williford, who's what they call a maker, and he builds a lot of uh, props and stuff. You're you're familiar with steampunk, aren't you? Yes. Okay, I thought so. I know you're pretty hip, Uh, and probably a lot of things I don't know. But uh, yeah, Thomas (laughs) Williford was the judge, and uh, two of my other friends that were competing in it, uh, Tobias McCurry and Taylors Forge, and uh, just watching that and seeing how they, you know, go out and get that's um. I think it's a great way for people who are in the arts to get exposure and to learn how to hone their craft when they're under the under some pressure, or time pressure there and competing. So I think it was good to bring something out. And I noticed there was, I know on one of the shows there was a woman uh, competitor. And I feel like you're, you know, maybe you've influenced um sort of led the way for a lot of women in this type of art, in taxidermy anyway, but also that type of art, hybrid work?
0: Um, you know, I wish I could claim that credit, um, but a lot of the props go to um, what, what we call MART, the Minnesota Association of Rogue Taxidermists, and they predate me, and um, one of their founding members was Serena Brewer, um, who does what's called rogue taxidermy, which actually is another reason that I've differentiated with hybrid taxidermy because I don't want to step on toes of people, um, you know, who sort of pioneered this more modern taxidermy movement. So, um, but Serena is a great resource, not just for beautiful, strange art, but she also knows a lot about the history of taxidermy. She's a great naturalist in her own right, so um, she's somebody who's really cool to pay attention to, and my work um, chronologically comes after hers. I mean, you also have to look at the longer taxidermy tradition, you know, like there's Walter Potter um, uh, in Victorian England doing some very strange, you know, intentionally strange um, taxidermy. Um, But if you're looking at American women doing um, weird taxidermy, um, Serena Brewer and the rogue taxidermy movement are the, is really the ones to look at.
1: Well, I will. (laughs) Now that I've been, I've been introduced (laughs) to a new world, you know, I will definitely. Now, we can talk about too. Um you're also I think you're a professor, uh, you're a writer, a poet. And I understand you've got some uh good news a publisher looking at a new book of poetry?
0: Yeah, I can I can't give any 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 um specific details yet, but I my first book was published with uh, with Blue Begonia Press, which is a small press in Washington. Um and I uh, had a friend who edited my book at the time and I edited his. Um, and he now works um, with a really fine um, literary magazine in eastern Washington, and they've had some interest from some of the larger presses to pick up a couple of their poets along with a bigger series that they're interested in in putting out. So um, we're in talks about that right now, nothing definite, but I'm hopeful that would be really great to see another volume of my work out there.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, how many books do you have out? Um.
0: I have a, a really thrilling research textbook where you can learn how to do um, sort of um, early 2000s internet research, so it's almost totally irrelevant now. Um, I have a memoir that I helped um, my friend Len Aaron, who is the founder and CEO of Aaron Brothers Art Mart. Um, I re- co-wrote with that with him a few years ago. He just died last year. Um, and then I have my first book of poems, which came out in 2000. It's called Aviation the three total right
1: now. You know, I noticed that on um, on your website, and uh, actually, I'm maybe not the website, I was reading a uh, review of your work or a or feature on you in HuffPost. And before one of the, see the pictures, it's Samsara 2, which was mm-hmm. um mixed media piece in your LA art show 2016. There's a, a verse, a poem from Billy Collins. Mhm. And he, he's such a beloved poet.
0: He's fantastic. Um, I got to meet him a million years ago when I was a student at the University of Washington, getting my master's degree. Um, he came and did a reading there and and led a small workshop for some of us, and we got to go out drinking with him afterwards. <laughs> and he is just he is just um, a masterful, easy, hilarious, smart storyteller, whether in person or in his poems. He's he's one of my all-time favorites.
1: Yeah, I think I was first introduced to his work years ago by a poet, uh, Bunny Goodjohn, who's a professor mm-hmm. at Randolph College in um, Virginia, and uh, just fell in love with him. Even I think I even heard him read once. No, I did, on um, Prairie Home Companion. Mm-hmm. But he seems... Yeah, have a way of reaching a lot of people. Um, does other people's poetry inspire your work? It does. You know, I I, I tell my students
0: um, all the time that they should they should read what they're interested in. I think especially younger writers, um, but really all all writers who are still getting experience. Um, there's sometimes the the fear that if we read other people's work, we're going to be unduly influenced, and our stuff is just going to be a knockoff of their stuff. And we want to be original. But really, the best way to learn is is to find other writers writing, you know, in your genre, and sometimes even outside your genre that you love. Um, you know, Billy Collins is one of my favorites. I also really love Mary Oliver. Um, I love the Romantics, New Yates and Keats, and um, I read them all the time, and I, it's it's sort of like having a library in your head of rhythms and, uh, you know, available types of metaphor, and it, it, reading other people's work gives you a flexibility in your own writing, I think, rather than limiting it.
1: I, I agree, uh, seriously. I, it's, <laughs> sort of the opposite of, um, I remember in, um, uh, what's her name, Patty, uh, George Harrison and... Eric Clapton's former wife, Patty Boyd, when she said mm-hmm. after George Harrison was sued for my sweet Lord, mm-hmm. as he lost the lawsuit, he allowed nothing on in the house. No radio, no music on TV, no records, nothing.
0: Wow. Yeah. I think we've, um, I think, you know, and things have changed a little bit with the the advent of the internet, you know, and and even changes, like, if you look at changes in music, I think it's probably most evident um, that sampling is okay now. We don't really consider that plagiarism anymore, especially if it's done in a sort of sporting way, you know, if you're not trying to hide it, but you're actually celebrating somebody else's work. And I think there's a lot more sort of collage in the arts in general now than there used to be, and not quite as much fear of of you know, sort of direct plagiarism. Um, I mean, of course, that still happens, but I think we artists tend to celebrate each other's work more now and to be a little bit more um, open to riffing on each other's um, uh, pieces.
1: I like that. I like the part it's sort of uh, celebrating other people's work too. Mhm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I one think of my it probably... favorite pieces, but... Who I'm is sorry. that? <laughs> oh, go one ahead. One of my favorite bands is the Beastie Boys, and um, one of the things I love most of them is that they're, you know, almost every song is indebted to other musicians' work. And um, but it, it it takes what other musicians have 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 done and makes it part of a conversation that you know that this band is having about love and life and violence and politics and. Um, I think it's really neat to to understand other artists' work in that way and to sort of express your your joy about what somebody else has done in in something new that you're doing.
1: Okay. Um, Are you still with me? Yes. Okay. I thought I heard heard something drop there. All right. Um, By the way, I have a message. Uh, Robert Leland Taylor, the artist, he said – He's been going over your your website and your work and researching more of it now. He said, uh I I'm, I'm just thrilled to hear about you and I can't wait to delve into more of your work, go through your website and thank you, Madam Perry, for having her on. Uh well, you're welcome, Robert Taylor. I appreciate that. And That's uh, very good. <laughs> So now he's got a new project, a new research project. Thank you so much, Robert. I appreciate you, too. <laughs> so uh, remember, the number is 646-716-9922 if you want to call. Um, so what do you like more? I think I think poetry. I, I just feel like the, you've got the soul of a poet. It's in your work and the way um, – and even when you talk to people, when I saw you when you were uh, – on Immortalized, and you were giving your feedback to the uh, competitors, Um, I just feel that there's a soul of a poet in everything you do.
0: Oh, that's very very kind. Thank you. You know, I think my my mom was an English teacher um, uh, before she had kids, and then she became a full-time mom. She also, um, you know, did other things. She substitutes hot and had a medical billing practice for a while, but Really, she, she had and has the soul of a poet, and um, I remember as a very young kid, you know, maybe two and a half years old, walking through um, the, the park with her, and everything had a name. She would point out flowers, and the flower had a name, and the kind of dog had a name, and the kind of tree had a name, and so very early on, I learned to, in a very happy way, associate language with experience, especially sublime experience. And so I, I think that I, I started to see that the, the world that way very early on, making connections between life and language. Um, and I think that's carried into what I enjoy doing most, which is um, telling a story. And so I, I don't know if I have a favorite between poetry and, um, you know, and three-dimensional art, but the, the mental language that I use for both of them is, is essentially the same. It's, it's finding relationships between things.
1: Which is, I like that because that's what I do. I'm an entertainment publicist, and that's what I do when I'm trying to find um, a media outlet to get a placement for a client. i got to find what aspect of their work ha- can relate to the, the particular show, the particular host, the the magazine or the story. Sort of like putting together a puzzle. And what What part will fit in here on this side and over there on that side?
0: Right. I mean, in that sense, life is a a series of Venn diagrams. You know, you're just sort of figuring out where everyone's circles overlap. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's true. And that's good. I think that's wonderful. And that's how we uh, learn and expand and also learn new things that we enjoy. Yeah. And uh, because of artists and writers like you, too, that find ways of blending things for us when and when you do like you recently had a pretty big art installation uh a show in Los Angeles that I was looking at uh, I know was the one were, in
0: Len- pardon me was it the i i I recently had a museum show in Lancaster which was sent it went really well it was really a pleasure.
1: Yes, yes, that's it. I'm sorry. Um, I, I'm going to blame it on the cord because I thought they were going to unplug me just a moment ago. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> um, that takes a lot of a lot of work, and you know, a lot of time. And you're there. W- there, you have what one big event where you're greeting, and, meeting, and greeting people. Like the video I saw of you, and there are people there talking and looking and asking questions, and you've got to be on the whole time. Um, It's very different than I would imagine with your books, and where people go on a tour. Maybe they'll do you know some radio kind of junkets or media tours, and then maybe go on a physical tour uh, around the country. What I'm getting at is, with your next published book, would you do a book tour, and would we be able to get you down in say the southeast of the country?
0: I would love that. Um, you know, it's a, it's it's hard out there for a poet. Um, really, um, most of the, there are some writers like like Billy Collins who we were talking about earlier who have a really strong readership. Um, most poets, uh, especially in America, uh, our primary audience is other poets. <laughs> so um, you know, nobody goes into poetry for the big bucks, and often even if you're with a large publisher, there's not money for a tour. Um, and so poets will end up actually putting tours together themselves. Um, I don't know what will happen, if, you know, if this book comes out. But I'm always open to doing readings. I love reading publicly. So um, if we could put something like that together, that would be fantastic.
1: Yay! Well, let's see. Um, Labor Day weekend there's a Decatur Book Festival, which is just the suburb of Atlanta is one of the biggest book festivals. I'm just saying. That's <laughs>
0: It would be fun. It's been a while since I've been in that region of the country. My grandfather was from Georgia, and I I, I love visiting the South.
1: Oh, cool. That's wonderful. Um, well, we'd love to have you. So, uh, we'll have a, a caller on the line. So, welcome to Madam Perry's salon. Come on in.
2: Tell us who hello. you are. Got room for one more in here? I'm sorry? I said, hello, got room for one more in here? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, this is uh, Are you calling from Chicago? Uh, thereabouts? Yes, I am mm-hmm. This This is a fascinating guy He's an animator um, He's created games He's an artist uh, And a writer for Bleeding Cool magazine Peter G Peter, I'm delighted to have you here uh, Catherine Cohen, meet Peter G Hi Peter, nice to meet Hello,
2: you Hello, how, nice to- how you doing? Nice to meet you too, how you doing? Great. Um, I wanted to call in because I have kind of an unusual question for you about the whole taxidermy thing. Um, okay. You, you, all right. You got to keep in mind that to me, art is communication. You know, if people say that art exists without an audience, that's not true because in order for the, in order for the uh, for the art to exist, it has to communicate something. And it seems like with the taxidermy it is very easy for either what you're trying to convey to get lost or for people to just start getting snarky and lose track of what you're saying. When you go through the creation process and the actual construction, how do you keep it things so that you keep the audience focused on what you're trying to do instead of letting them go off on goofy tangents or lose interest? How do you keep them involved in the, in the conversation that your art creates?
0: Um. You know, I I I don't really try to control what my audience thinks. It's um, you know, as you can imagine, taxidermy as a medium can be pretty dicey in the first place. I get a I get a lot of um, PETA type com- comments that are very good and very well intentioned, but very often not very well researched. Um, even as you know, in general, or even as especially as regarding my own work and how I source and what my process is. Um,
2: oh, you, you're think- you're talking to a guy who's very familiar with cartoon history. I know very well how things can get misconstrued in uh, radical ways.
0: Sure. I, I think the most important thing with taxidermy is um, it really has to do um, with skill and experience. Um, there's, a, there's a whole kind of strain of taxidermy that's become popular on the Internet called DERP, that's D-E-R-P, taxidermy, which is essentially unintentionally horrible taxidermy. Um, and that can, that can get a lot of snark just because it seems like a waste of the animal and it, and it is artistically not good. Um, so one of, I think one of the things that artists in my position um, uh, try to do is to create taxidermy that's very convincing so that the quality of the taxidermy is not at issue and the animal can kind of exist um, in a more realistic space ready to tell the story that you want it to tell.
2: Okay. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's really interesting. I've I've rejected doing. Eno- I've had a number of ideas and projects that I thought about doing it, and I've just rejected them because I thought, no, this is going to be misconstrued horribly. There's going to be people who are either going to be so outraged by by what uh, by what uh, is involved in the message, or something that's going to make everybody lose sight of what you're trying to do, and everyone's going to focus on the outrage instead of on the message. So yeah, I tend to I. I know what you mean about uh, about people reacting wrong.
0: Well, I actually, I actually envy your position because I'm not quite successful enough to care yet what people think. <laughs>
2: well, well it, I, it, it, oh, believe me, I'm not, I, I'm not successful either. My uh, my, ba- my biggest uh, my biggest cartoon on YouTube has only four thousand views. Trust me, I ain't big. Uh, <laughs> it's it's okay. Here's a perfect example of of what I mean about people misconstruing the message. Uh, people who have heard me on the show, it's not going to come as a surprise. Uh, I am not a Donald Trump fan, uh, and I'm not saying this to, to derail it to a political piece. I'd want to keep focused on the audience reaction. And when he was running for president, he was talking about building uh, you know, the great border wall, build a big, beautiful wall and everything. The thought had occurred to me to make as a joke, because I can program for classic video game systems, and I was going to make uh, Donald Trump build the wall game for the Atari 2600. Now, if you know anything about games from that era, they existed to punish you. Anytime you succeed in the game, it got harder and harder, and basically it just broke you. You could not win no matter what because eventually it just became impossible for, uh, for, uh, for a human to actually react fast enough. And the idea was that you would be building this wall, and you'd have to keep rebuilding it, but eventually you would fail. The whole point of it was that no matter how good you were, this whole project of building a wall to keep everybody out was going to fail. But as I started mm-hmm. thinking about putting it together, I thought people are not going to understand what you're trying to say here. They're either going to think you're a Trump supporter, which let's face it, when it comes to politics, there's loonies on all sides and I don't want to deal with that. And there's going to be people that are outraged to, uh, to you know, people who either say, Hey, you're a Trump supporter. You're great. Or people who say, Oh, you hate Trump. You're on our side. And everybody would be so interested in trying to pull me to their camp. That they would miss the point of what I was trying to do with the game, and mm-hmm. it's just at the point I'm like, I don't need this headache, and I just toss it into rubbish bin. So it's not so much that I'm successful enough; it's just that I don't want to deal with the hassle.
0: Right? Yeah. You know, I think it's. I think a lot of it too is. I mean, all art is inherently political. You know, people who say they're apolitical don't under, don't understand. You know, probably that they're living in a fairly privileged space.
2: Um, well, it's it's not only that, but people are. I was going to say, people overlook it, you know, oh, we want something that's not political like Star Wars. Star Wars was about overthrowing a fascist government. The last Spider-Man right. movie was about poverty. It's There's always an angle. The only question is, do you notice it and do you agree with it?
0: Right. What I was going to say is I think that, you know, all art is inherently political, and um, I think it's sort of... Uh, how on the nose do you want to be as an artist about the, you know, uh, about your politics or the politics that you want to examine? And um, speaking of Trump, I guess to sort of tell you how I might deal with um, sort of that kind of a trope, I have a piece called The Narcissist, which is um, an alligator that has a little duckling in its mouth. The, the, the mouth is open and the, the duckling is walking into it. Um, the alligator is an alligator rug, which, you know, has the sort of propped open jaws and then the flat body. And then above the alligator and the duckling um, on a on a pink bureau is uh, that sort of old-fashioned um, um, mirror, the flat mirror with, a, uh, you know, brushes and combs on it. And there's a father duck um, perched on the side of the mirror with a few of the other ducklings who are now wandering down towards uh, the alligator. And the piece is called The Narcissist because obviously the father is you know, sort of gazing at himself in the the um, the mirror of the pond he's standing on, while his children are walking into the mouth of the alligator. Um, oh, and wow. so entitling that piece the narcissist. I guess what I'm commenting on is that sort of larger, um, tendency in our politicians and ourselves um, to make it all about us and and um, be incapable of being wrong. Uh, so, and I did that piece um, uh, just before the 2016 election. <laughs> That's, that's kind of how I hit, how I hit on that stuff. Um, and my concern isn't so much whether people will understand it or not as, as whether I'm reflecting how I feel about that accurately.
2: Uh, but why you describe that? Sounds like a brilliant piece. It really does. I mean, that really does sound, sound incredible.
1: Thanks. <laughs> Talk about powerful, a powerful piece. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, <laughs> Hold, hold with me one second, uh, Peter, and I do have a question from Andrea Walker, and she's an author, um, and uh, actually, she's a member of my book coaching group, my uh, my mastermind group. Um, she has lots of lovely birds she lives with, and one of the characters in her book that's coming out, um, actually, I think in a couple of weeks, uh, one of her characters is the male that has a shape that resembles a bird. I don't know exactly what it looks like because i haven't read the book yet but um andrea's question because she's listening to the show on her phone so she can't call she said um she asked she wanted to ask you catherine do you ever do pet memorials with your art i know glass cremation with ash Or excuse me i know glass cremation ash sculptures are a big thing right now and um she didn't know if you would ask, and by the way, since you did miss the first few minutes, Andrea, just so I hope you know or heard or saw my note, um, she doesn't kill animals to create her art, and she doesn't use animals that have been killed, and she's not for trophy hunting or just so we're clear about that. So, okay, so that's Andrea's question.
0: So her her question was about pets, and um, I actually have had interest, Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry I actually have had interest um, just from some you know private type clients who have had pets that have died who are interested in having them mounted um, uh, I don't do that A because I'm, I'm really interested in taxidermy only as a fine art medium I'm not interested in, in that aspect of it but also I know people um, who do pet taxidermy um, one of my friends has a company called Precious Creature and her work is outstanding it's beautiful and sweet and um, she does just perfect memorials for people um, but the, the diff and, and she, she's very good at it but the, the difficulty with pet taxidermy um, other than doing it well is that even even if you've done it perfectly when a pet owner sees their pet basically as a still life it doesn't look exactly like their pet anymore because anything that is frozen I don't mean frozen like ice I just mean still um, anything that is a still life, Um, just doesn't have those sort of fine qualities of gesture and movement that animals and people have anymore. You know, when a a hunter brings a deer into a taxidermist and then, you know, nine months later, a year later, gets um, his mounted deer head back, he doesn't go, you know, Jimmy didn't look like this when I brought him in. He had a different facial expression. But when somebody takes their chihuahua into a taxidermist, um, and has it done? There's a very there's a strong likelihood that when they get Jimmy back, they're going to say this doesn't look exactly like Jimmy. And with taxidermy, you pretty much get one shot. I mean, there there are things that you can that you can change about it once it's once it's finished. Um, but pretty much when you get a piece of taxidermy, it's going to look like what it looks like. So um, I admire people who can who can do that kind of taxidermy well, um, but I don't do it.
1: Okay. That makes sense to me. Um, I think that's why people have asked, why have I never had any of the corgis preserved that way? I go, nah. And But I think, too, Catherine, the reason I don't is that if they're in one position, whether they're sitting or in a little down position, I know this is going to sound nuts, but I feel bad that they were in one position all the time and never got to lay down and sleep or anything, so that would bother me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like yeah. Oh, your leg, your leg is gonna fall asleep. Oh
2: wait! <laughs> I have a, I had a friend with a sense of humor, who, who he had a cocker spaniel, and he had a taxidermy into an attack position with his fangs bared like Cujo, and it was, it was an interesting conversation piece. I'll give him that. But you just sit there and you kind of wonder, oh, was this really the best idea? Yeah, you know, it's a long way to go for a <laughs> joke.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's sort it, of an etern- eternal gag. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it, 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 it's it's kind of like a painting of Auschwitz on black velvet. You're just like, okay, I get what you're trying to do, but I'm not sure you should have done it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure I get what you'd be trying to do with a painting of on black velvet of Auschwitz, but
1: I see your point. <laughs> oh. By the way, <laughs> Catherine, I know I've... I- Pretty sure i've kept you longer than i promised you but i do want to say that um i do want to let people know that you've got a show coming up in the fall and before that when we're talking about your uh, book of poetry publishers looking at it let me tell you this katherine cohen twice i've told people on the show oh yeah it's it's a fait accompli don't worry about it um It will be published, and you'll be back here to talk about it. And both times people said, oh, my God, yes, within two weeks, everything was handled. So uh, how did you know? I hope you're a
0: good luck charm. I'll take it.
1: Say what now? I said, I hope you're a good luck luck charm. I'll take it. I am. I am. Actually... (laughs) um, I'll tell you what, when I started doing, uh, uh, playing in a band, and I was sending out my tapes back in the cassette days to, to agents, and then one agent called and said, I've got a gig for you. I'm great. And it was being a, uh, she goes, I, want you to, uh, I need a fortune teller for a stockbroker's convention. And then I'm thinking, oh, great. She didn't even listen to my tape. She has no idea what I do. And then she goes, I know you're not a fortune teller. You're a jazz singer, but... If I send this woman, Madam, uh, oh wait, this, there was a woman in Atlanta who was very famous psychic. Because if I send her, she's going to tell them they're going to die. Bring the party down. So um, I began to train. I was started writing for uh, a, a, a what do you call it, a New Age metaphysical magazine, and, and learning some things from people. And before you knew it, I was I was booked every year at that stockbroker convention. Um, <laughs> Honestly, and of course, I think if you've ever worked with the public, you can read people pretty well, too. And uh, I think one of my last gigs was a New Year's Eve gig, and I remember telling the lady, oh, look, I'm, I appreciate the call, and I appreci- and I need the money, but I don't feel too well. I've had the flu. She goes, okay, p- and this is the money. They need it. And I said, okay, what? It, who where? And it was a, a New Year's Eve party for Usher's mother. <laughs> wow. So it was like, oh, great, I'm the card reader to the stars, or the stars' mamas. But anyway, so trust me on that, okay? And you've got a show coming. you would tell people in the fall, it's going to be um, in California, at at Redondo Beach area? Yes.
0: um, You know, the South Bay hasn't always been known for its art scene, but we have some really cool things starting to pop up. There's a gallery in Hermosa, that my friend Mike Collins owns called Shockbox, um, and they wrote, rotate shows pretty quickly, two weeks to a month, and they've got some fantastic, super edgy artists. Um, and then in Redondo Beach, uh, the show that I'm going to be in this fall uh, is late September, early October. It's on Redondo Pier, and there's a large old French restaurant that's been sort of abandoned, and so they give artists different walls and rooms in this restaurant. And I'm not going to say too much because I'm still working on my concept, but I have um, essentially half of a kitchen going into a large sort of meat locker type refrigerator. And so I'm going to be doing an installation involving mice and a dollhouse that sort of goes for, there's a, a sort of a trail that will go in from the kitchen into the meat locker and culminate in some stuff going on in kind of a crazy dollhouse. So I'm working on that for them right now.
1: Oh my word, Peter G. Are you thinking what I'm thinking?
2: Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think Town. I think we have a divergence of ideas here. <laughs>
1: I, think, I think this sounds out of this world. I've just I, I think oh, I got to. Get...
2: Oh, agree. Just uh, the direction it's going in. I think is where we're splitting off.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay.
0: You guys, you guys should come down if you can make it. There's, they're gonna, there are, but you know, I'm, I'm, um, not by far the only artist. There are dozens of artists who are involved, so it's, it's a really, it's going to be a really cool show.
1: Oh, and uh, one message, uh, Andrea Walker also said thank you for, uh, for answering her question, and, uh, and she thanked me for having you on the show. So you are very welcome, Andrea Walker, and you're going to be on here soon, um, in a few weeks, I think. So, uh, thank you. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that makes me all giddy, when people thank me for the people I have on the show. And I thank you, Andrea, and also Catherine Cohen, Cohen, the one-and-a-half syllable. Thank you for being so, you didn't even know, but thank you for being so generous with your time tonight.
0: Of course. Thanks for having me. It's fun talking to you both.
1: About stuff. um, You know what? If you will make sure, or I will try to follow you on LinkedIn and everything, I'll make sure that I have the details on your work and your show and everything, and I will share information on uh, Catherine Cohen's uh, website, and I'll share uh, on her upcoming shows. I'll share them on my uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Reddit, if I can uh, get out of the penalty box. Do you use Reddit, Catherine?
0: <laughs> I, I have followed some stuff on Reddit, but I'm just old enough that I can access it, but it's totally confusing to me. I'm right on that cusp where I kind of get it, but I can't really dive in too far.
1: <laughs> well, uh, you know, I have to, you know, encourage my clients to use social media, and I, and I get a lot out of it. But I tend to feel that Reddit is like the Dr. Sheldon Cooper of social media.
0: <laughs> it's a, it's just sort of just a series of, of um, fun yet dangerous rabbit holes, you know
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think it's like, you know, you know Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory is like you never know when you're making a mess And I always, I, I, do, I get on there, I think I'm doing fine, I'm having a good time Then all of a sudden, nope, you're under penalty, you can't come do anything else for a day <laughs> What did I do? So, uh, I don't. But, but anyway, you'll get to her website, you'll go see Catherine Cohen, and I will share all the information so you can find it. So with some people that are listening in their car or somewhere else and you can't write it down, don't worry. I'll share all the information with you. And uh, I am just so glad to have you here. Catherine, Peter G., thanks for hanging here in the Genie Bottle with us. And all I can say is that...